This is the Investor Weekly News update for May 29th, where we've been talking what are the most affordable cities out there and unfortunate death of investment legend Sam Zell. And I'll be finishing up with a little poem at the end. But hope everybody is enjoying the long weekend. I am still sore from doing the uh, CrossFit workout Murph, where you got to run a mile, 300 air squats, 200 push-ups, 100 pull-ups. Good news is you can partition that however you want. So usually five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, and 15 air squats. And you do that 20 times. And then you finish up with another mile run. I didn't do it this year with the 20-pound weight vest because I feel like I'm getting old these days and I'm already under stress. So I just did it without the weight vest. But first thing off, Yahoo Finance reports that the U.S. economy beats back dubious recession fears after GDP. Where So they released the latest GDP numbers for quarter one, 2023. It, GDP grew 1.7%. They're calling this a good thing. I actually think this is a bad thing. They say a combination of stronger growth and stronger inflation in quarter one may make it even more likely that the Fed will see further rate hikes as needed to cool activity enough to bring inflation back to 2%. So what I think the Fed wants to see is the economy not doing as well. Right now, the economy is doing well. Unemployment is very low, although you're not going to see the unemployment start to tick up probably till at least another quarter from now. So that's not really a leading indicator that you want to really peg your your decision on if you're going to raise or decrease interest rates or hold it still, which is what I think is going to be happening for an extended period of time. They continue to say, while we expect the Fed to leave rates steady at this June meeting, the minutes from this month's FOMC meeting made it clear that there was more significant loosening of labor market conditions is needed to keep rate hikes permitting off the table. They released these notes and they also made it clear that although it was a unanimous decision to raise the rates in May this past month, there was some discussion on whether that was a thing that they should do in the long term. But GDP is one of those statistics that does lag a bit by the time it comes out, is what I'm saying. And again, that it was positive 1.7%. Business Now reports HUD sees massive drop in multifamily deal volume on slowing housing production. They're saying the pipeline of new affordable housing projects is drying up as macroeconomic conditions make it more difficult for even market rate multifamily deals to pencil. The slowdown in affordable deals moving forward is evidenced by a precipitous drop in new loan volume at the nation's top housing agency. According to National Low Income Housing Coalition, the U.S. faces a shortage of 7.3 million rental homes affordable to extremely low-income renters or those making less than 30% of the area median income. With increases in interest rates, construction costs, labor shortages were seeing a drastic impact on the production of affordable housing. On a bright spot, they say, in the affordable housing landscape, experts say that it is higher on the government's agenda than ever before. When you start talking about 50% of the largest population group now being challenged to be able to afford a place to live, suddenly it's on the nation's agenda. And I think this is exactly why I invest in this kind of workforce housing sec- sector. Maybe not the low end, that lower middle class 
sector, people renting between $900 to $1,500 a month. We're not talking about people in California, those types of markets that may probably be equate to $1,200 a month to $2,000 a month being that range that I would, if I invested in California, which I wouldn't because it's a blue state and a few other reasons I don't really want to get into at this point. Again, we focus on the red states where there's landlord friendly laws on our side and there tends to be a little bit more economic growth. If you guys would like to get access to a lot of the free e-courses that we have, we do have a new learn management system on the horizon, replacing our old one, which will migrate all our cool e-courses over. You guys can get access to that at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. And if you guys are on our list currently, make sure you guys book that onboarding call with myself before I stop doing that or I go on a little vacation and I stop doing that for a while. You know, again, sign up at simplepassacashflow.com slash club. Wallet Hub released the 2023's most affordable cities for home buyers. Now, this may or may not align anything to do with investing per se, but apparently people like these top 10 charts and just reading from the most affordable on top, Montgomery, Alabama, Flint, Michigan, Toledo, Ohio, Detroit, Michigan, Anchorage, Ohio, Warren, Michigan, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Yuma, Arizona, Springfield, Illinois, and Palm Beach, Florida. What do I say? What do I say? A lot of those places are not really that great of places to invest, <laughs> but they are apparently affordable. If you guys are wondering what are some of the least affordable places, those would be Santa Barbara, California, Berkeley, Santa Monica, Glendale, Burbank, Los Angeles. Shoot, all of those six are in California, which is another reason why I don't want to invest in California. Honolulu, Hawaii came in about 280, pretty close to that top 10 in the least affordable cities for home buyers. Some other charts here. So here are some, maybe this has something to do with investors here. The maintenance affordability, the lowest would be Newark, New Jersey, Detroit, Michigan, Hartford, Connecticut, Cleveland, Ohio, and Flint, Michigan. Flint, Michigan always seems to be on the worst of all lists out there. Too bad there. It's not, it doesn't work like the NBA draft where if you're like the consistently the worst, you get the lottery picked. But I wouldn't want to invest in Flint, Michigan. Although if you have the cojones and you're well capitalized, maybe you could make it work. But for a lot of investors out there under a gazillion dollars net worth or not a Sam Zell investing legend, probably don't have the pockets to do that. And that kind of goes into a little bit of a sad news. We followed Sam Zell's movements. I always look at on a weekly basis what the guy is up to because he's known as he's a billionaire real estate investor. He just started from the ground up, rental properties, commercial real estate, and then is the peak of his career and sunsetting a decade or two, he grew this a distressed asset investor, which turned him into a billionaire. And people gave him the name, the Grave Dancer. Unfortunately, he died this past Thursday. He was 81 years old. You know, I think that was constitutes a long, healthy life. He's an iconic figure in real estate and throughout the corporate world. Although his wide-ranging portfolio of investments were distressed assets in real estate and in the media, including an ultimately disastrous bet on the Trib Tribune company. Zell had a personal net worth of $5.9 billion, according to Greenberg. 
So he had a knack for scooping up cheap real estate and selling it later at a profit. And a strategy he outlined in a 1978 article titled The Grave Dancer, which became his nickname in the industry, said he was dancing on skeletons of other people's mistakes. So he is a good example of if you're well capitalized, you, know, you can buy anything and you typically start to get into more and more riskier type of assets for bigger profits and less competition. I've always kind of scratched my head whether we want to go down that road, maybe with a rescue fund to go after heavily distressed assets. I think Sam Zell, I don't want to disrespect the man or anything like that, but I always question like, when is enough? Do you really need $5.9 billion net worth or even a billion or even 500 million or $100 million net worth? When is enough? The cool thing about these guys is these guys are internally motivated where it's not really about a number. It's more about doing the thing, right? Taking lumps of coal and turning it into gold. And from what I see from these guys and even some of our investors, right? It, and I think myself is it's with, even if you have all the money in the world and you can buy whatever you want, and you're still looking for that excitement, that deal. And nothing replaces that. And I call that kind of like Easter egg hunting for little kids go Easter egg hunting. It's all about that chase, that discovery. And when you grow up, even though you have $25,000, at least of passive cash flow coming in, um, you're still chasing that excitement. And because if not, what is life for? With that, I stumbled upon this poem from a mentor. It's called The Station by Robert Hastings. I'm going to read it out aloud and we'll end with this. And it is a very powerful poem and a very well-known poem. If you haven't heard about it, maybe Google it, The Station at Robert Hastings and read it to yourself. Um, if you're not a reader, go to YouTube. People read through it and play a little nice piano sound in the background. But it really talks about the journey that we're all on you know, and the conflict with the pursuit of investments, money, and lifestyle, and more, and the end game the, that's the iconic station at the end that I think a lot of us are very goal-oriented. But I think to live a happy life, you have to be less goal-oriented and be more in the moment or at the current goal that you're heading to. Or the analogy that this poem kind of talks about is like a station, right? If you're thinking you're rolling along the train tracks and you're heading to the end station, but there really are multiple stations along the way. So here we go. Let me, let me read this for you guys. Tucked away in our subconscious is an idyllic vision. We are traveling by train. Out the windows, we drink in the passing scenes of children waving at the crossing. Cattle grazing on a distant hillside, row upon row of corn and wheat. Flatlands and valleys, mountains and rolling hillsides, and city skylines. But almost in our minds is the final destination. On a certain day, we will put into the station, bands will be playing, and flags waving. Once we get there, our dreams will come true, and the pieces of our lives will fit together like a completed jigsaw puzzle. Relentlessly, we pace the aisles, damning the minutes, waiting, waiting for the station. When we reach the station, that will be it. We cry. When I'm 18, when I buy a new 450 SL Mercedes-Benz, when I put that last kid through college, when I have paid off the mortgage, 
when I get a promotion, when I reach retirement, I shall live happily ever after. Sooner or later, we realize that there is no station, no one place to arrive. The true joy of life is the trip. The station is only a dream. It consistently outdistances us. Relinquish the moment is a good model. It isn't the burdens of today that drive men mad. It is the regrets over yesterday and the fear of tomorrow. Regret and fear are twin thieves who rob us of today. And I'll repeat that. Regret and fear are twin thieves who rob us of today. Regret is reality after the facts. So stop pacing the aisles and counting the miles. Instead, climb more mountains, eat more ice cream, go barefoot more often, swim more rivers, watch more sunsets, laugh more, cry less. Life must be lived as we go along. The station will come soon enough. Again, that is a poem by The Station by Robert Hastings. Hopefully that was impactful. And we'll see you guys next week.